ago, a few years ago, they came out with a TV series called Portlandia. Um, I can't remember what network this came from, but I get it off Netflix, so that's all that matters to me. And uh, it's a spinoff from Saturday Night Live, so uh, Fred Armiston and uh, a lady whose name I can't remember, you know, spun off this series uh, based on Portland, and it's basically just a series of enjoying and poking fun at everything that is uh, Portland, and especially being from the Northwest, uh, the, what makes it hilarious is it's all true. <clears throat> anyway, so uh, somewhere in the second season, there's an episode where, um, you know, there's the shot and there's this house in suburban Portland, s address 7 p.m., and then inside there's the couple, Fred Armiston and his wife, and they're getting ready to go to a party. It's one of her friends. It's her birthday. She's trying to get him out the door. He's not really excited, doesn't really want to go. So he reaches over, and, um, and there's this pack of DVDs, and he says, I just picked this up from a friend of mine. It's called Battlestar Galactica. I hear it's really good. What if we watch just one episode before we go? So she's like, I suppose that's okay. He's like, 40 minutes, tops. We'll watch it, we'll go. And she's like, that's cool, we'll, we'll grab dessert. So they stick it in, boom, Battlestar Galactica logos up in the screen. And then it flashes at the bottom 45 minutes later. And they're like, whoa, that was amazing. And she says, do you think we have time for one more? And he says, I think we do. 45 minutes later, whoa. She says, I just texted my friend, happy birthday. So that's taken care of. She's like, I got to get up early in the morning for work, but tell you what. What if we put our PJs on, come back, we'll watch one more episode. Eight hours later, the sun has come up. Whoa, let's watch one more episode. Pretty soon she says, oh, I can't even remember the last time I went to the bathroom. I feel like I have a bladder infection. Tell you what, let's watch one more episode, then I'll get myself some antibiotics. She ends up losing her job. The power gets shut off and uh, before they get to the end of the DVDs. <clears throat> According to a survey that Netflix did recently, uh, binge-watching TV shows is not really the future, it's the present, uh, that like 75% of Americans have a positive view of uh, watching multiple episodes in a row, and according to the survey, over 60% of us, that's the way we typically tend to watch TV. Um, I have no problem with TV or binge-watching. In fact, after our celebration this afternoon at Paul Schuler's, that's probably what I'll be doing. Um, the point that I want to draw is that we live in a world where to, to come to something over and over and over and over again and to still not be filled up typifies our experience. That is, that is the human experience, to be thirsty and hungry, to have an emptiness and to want to fill it with something and to fill it again and again and again and again to go to TV or movies or food or friendships or any number of things and yet still come away thirsty. Jesus' message for this woman this morning, if you are here last week, we, we focused in on Jesus and his style and his mission, how he um, was not interested in the righteous but came to the broken that came to this woman in respect and invited her to help him and engaged in conversation with her and was uh, gentle in all ways. And uh, I want to take a look this morning at the conversation that he had with this woman, what it was that he wanted to communicate in 
In short, it's that uh, she, like us, is uh, thirstier than she will admit. Um, and she's been going to the wrong thing to fill up her thirst, and, uh, and there's a better way to live. The conversation that we have um, is, is like this, this winding trail. It, we're talking about thirst, and then we're talking about husbands, and we're talking about mountains, and it's sort of all over the place. And yet, um, everyone who studies the passage tends to think that there is a consistent flow of thought that's taking place. That even though in one minute we're talking about thirst, and before we know it, we're talking about worshiping on mountains, that both Jesus and the woman understand the flow. There's a, there's a consistent thought. And uh, the conversation has three turning points where they hinge from one topic to the next, and those three turns are going to be my three points this morning, the three things I want to take a look at in this conversation and what Jesus is inviting this woman to admit. And uh, if we'll be honest, I think we will find a lot of ourselves in her, which is good because that means that like her, we qualify for Jesus' love and salvation. Jesus asks her for a drink. Uh, she's a little bit preemptively prejudicial. This is an awkward relationship with um, boundaries and prejudices of all kinds. Uh, and the first turn occurs in verse 13 and 14. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a well a spring of water welling up to eternal life. That this story, like all the biblical stories, takes place in a dry and thirsty land. This is an arid uh, Mediterranean climate where uh, if you're a, a farmer, which many of the Israelites were, probably your chief stressor in life is water. If you have water, you have life. Because you can drink, and your cattle can drink, and your your crops will continue to grow. And uh, if you don't have water, you, you don't have life. That um, life at this time and this place was typified by a continual search for water to sustain yourself and survive. Um, we find out in the course of the passage, this is Jacob's well, that uh, the patriarch Jacob from the Old Testament is supposed to have dug this well. And this is one of the... Um, few archaeological sites from the Old and New Testaments that we have with us today. We could, if we wanted, get on a plane and fly to Israel and visit this well. Um, it is, uh, at this point in history, over 100 feet deep and may have been even more so at this time. It may be the deepest well in all of Palestine that um, these people had such a need to have a consistent source of water and life that it was worth it, very worth it, to um, dig a hundred-foot well to find this water. And yet Jesus' point is, um, is that the wells run dry, that there's more going on here than just water. In the Garden of Eden was a place where everything was peaceful and filled and at rest. And the Lord walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the garden, in the cool of the day. And there were plants and fruit of every kind all around them and multiple rivers, as Genesis describes, flowing together that uh, 
the Garden of Eden is a picture and actually was a place that typified the, the fullness, the full provision of life and peace. And from the moment of the fall until this time today, um, that peace and that fullness has been forever lost. And in the moment of the fall, the Lord brings down a curse and says, because the sin that has entered the world through you, um, the fullness, this rest, has now been broken. That enters into the world a brokenness that comes with work. That for Adam, the toil of the ground is not going to be uh, joyful and always fruitful in the way that it was before. And it's not just uh, working with the ground. All forms of work and labor and productivity that we enter into, just like with Richard's son, are constantly stymied and filled with emptiness and brokenness. There's pain in childbirth. There's broken relationships that Adam and Eve immediately begin shaming each other, distancing themselves from the Lord. That we live ever since the fall in a thirsty world that the place of ever-flowing rivers and edible fruits um, has been broken and come to an end and from the moment of the fall until now we struggle under all those brokennesses our work our relationships with each other our relationship with the ground and that um, our continual desire to go back over and over again that we drink from the well and yet are never fully satisfied is a picture of our need. He asks for water. The woman says, you have nothing to draw with. And Jesus says, that's right. Everyone who drinks the water of this well will be thirsty again. And just as we talked about last time, Jesus not only points out the thirst of the world, the emptiness, the sort of never satisfied desire, he experienced it himself. Um, his father, Joseph, Jesus' father, gets mentioned in all of the narratives about Christ's birth. And he never gets mentioned again. And on the cross, one of the last things that Jesus feels the need to do is to put his mother in the care of the Apostle John, who wrote for us this book which there would have been no need to do if Joseph was present. And so we don't know what happened. Either Joseph died or abandoned the family. But one thing we do know, that Jesus lived his life without a father. And all the emptiness that, that comes with that, the loneliness in the world, the lack of knowing if, as a man, I can really make it, and had to seek that out from his Father in heaven. Even this passage in verse 6, Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, needs a drink of water. And by the way, never gets his drink of water. At no point in this passage does anyone have enough kindness in their heart to give the poor man a drink of water. And Jesus died thirsty. On the cross, he said, I thirst. And so, for the Apostle John, drawing on metaphors of water and life and fullness from the Old Testament, sees this moment, this interaction between Jesus and the woman about water, and yet the water is the metaphor of the emptiness of the world. That we all live and die thirsty. And this woman knew her thirst. What does she say? 
Jesus says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water again. I think that is the thing that distinguishes the woman from Nicodemus. If you are here last time, we were talking about the different way that Jesus approaches Nicodemus, who kind of has all the answers, from the way that he approaches the woman at the well, who has questions and need, and at this point, thirst, is that she is willing to admit what Nicodemus never does, that she is thirsty, that the world is not working for her, that she's coming to the well in the middle of the day, drawing over and over again, And using Jesus' own metaphor, she's um, probably beginning to understand and ask for his help. And so the first thing for us to see this morning is that for us to experience the living water that Jesus has for us, the first thing we must know is our thirst. That we must be willing and ready and able to be a thirsty people. That, um, That you might not even know this about yourself. But because the scriptures tell me this, I know that you are a thirsty, hurting, empty person. That's what the scriptures say about all of us, that for all of us, there's something in our lives and our relationships and in our work and our loves and our longing that is not working for you. And the beginning of life is to come to Jesus as this woman says, does, and say, sir, give me this water. That um, as people of the scriptures, we should expect to live thirsty. Um, Expect and and accept. Accept in the sense of grief and loss that um, some counselors have looked at the process of grief grief and loss and somebody outlined five stages. The last one is acceptance. And uh, I read about this. Acceptance in the grief and loss doesn't mean like, I accept it, that's great, it's so awesome that they passed away. I accept it. That's not what it means. Acceptance means I'm going to hurt for the rest of my life because my father and mother are not here anymore. And I have accepted that loss and I am going to live with that emptiness for the rest of my life. I'm not going to like it, but I make peace with it. There it is. Some of you heard me this analogy. It's like an uninvited guest on your couch. Well, good morning. Can I get you some cereal? He's there on your couch. He's not going to leave. You don't want him to leave. He's not going to leave. You wish that he would. You might as well get him some cereal. That there's a kind of emptiness in this present stage of existence that we live with and will live with for the rest of our lives. And as far as we are able to be honest about that, it will bring us towards life in Jesus. That Jesus may even keep your well or fountain from working for you. Because he loves you too much to allow you to get sustenance from the wrong place. And that's the next place that this conversation goes. It's the next turn that um, the woman says, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here again. And Jesus says to her, Go call your husband. And I can't imagine um, what she felt or looked like in that moment. But Jesus, in his gentle and firm way, 
is inviting her to fully make the transition from talking about metaphorical water, water to what he's really talking about, our thirst and longing and the emptiness of it, and where she has gone to fill the emptiness in her heart. The woman answers him, I have no husband. And he said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband, which you have said is true. That uh, within a few minutes of conversation with this woman, in, in his gentleness and his strength, he has brought her to the point where what is really true about her is on the table. That she is thirsty, she's thirsty for water, she's thirsty for love, and she's been going to men her entire life to meet it. And I doubt the experience was, um, was positive. It probably was the first time. <clears throat> and um, anytime people have struggles in their life, which is all of us, by the way, it, it comes from somewhere in pain in your past. <clears throat> so somewhere in her past is pain and rejection and the question of, I'm not really sure if I'm worth it because my father or someone else in life rejected me or shamed me and I have this hurting need, this thirst, exactly what we've been talking about and I'm not sure where to get it and I met this man and he paid attention to me. And for the first time in my life, I felt amazing. And so she has a kind of feeding tube from her heart to this man, and she plugs it right in, and for 10 minutes, it works awesome. Maybe even a month or a year, and the source dried up. Who knows? Who, who knows if, um, if he died or he rejected her? But in one way or another, with pain, for certain, the relationship ends, and so now the pain and rejection is worse than it was before, but she has the memory of what she received, that moment of fullness. And so she goes and plugs it in again and again and again. And probably is being mistreated by these men the entire time. Um, but there's still this original hope that maybe, maybe in this place, this, this gnawing emptiness, this thirst I've had my entire life, maybe in the next relationship, maybe there, I can find what I need to fill this hole. And perhaps because her sixth man is not her husband, she's reached a point of emptiness and cynicism that this may not even be worth getting married again. That Jesus is inviting her to see her real thirst and how deeply it goes. That we all respond to our thirst in one way or another by stuffing something into that hole. It might be obvious, like this woman's patterns of broken relationship. It might be easier to hide. It might be um, good works. Uh, it might be serving other people. It might be money or success or power. Any number of things will work for a little while. We come to whatever that well is for us over and over and expect that it will satisfy us but we are always left thirsty. Jeremiah 2.13 says, My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Jeremiah is using the same life and water analogy. 
the Lord says, I have a spring of living water for you. And the problem is that my people have rejected it and have dug for themselves their own wells, which are not working for that. The problem is, um, at its worst, when you're not even sure what it is that you're going to fill up your hole with. That um, anything that we go to, aside from the source of living water himself, look, the problem is not with a thing. That these things were made to be good. Relationships, authority and leadership, food, wine, money are good things. And uh, that Jesus, just as he did at the wedding in Cana and making a lot of water, he will come and he'll say, this is good, isn't it? This is so good. I love a glass of wine. This is so great. But let's not live for that. Let's not live for that. There's something better to be had. We're um, turning away from the true source of life, and um, anything that we stuff in its place is what the Bible calls an idol. There's this quote I put at the beginning of the worship folder in page 4 from uh, Cornelius Plantinga. He says, All forms of idolatry involve us in deep folly. All idolatry is not only treacherous, but also futile. Human desire, deep and restless and seemingly unfillable, keeps stuffing itself with finite goods, but these cannot satisfy. If we try to fill our hearts and anything beside, with anything besides the God of the universe, we find that we are overfed, but undernourished, and that day by day, week by week, year after year, we are thinning down to a mere outline of a human being. If you're visiting with us this morning, uh, you should know that um, the message of Christianity is not just that you sin, it's also that your sin doesn't work for you. That's the problem, that there's a better way to live. Or um, to borrow a line from another pastor I know, who's fond of saying, the problem is not that you want too much. The problem is that you don't want enough. That you would be satisfied with the little stuff relationship and money and love and power, that you would be satisfied with that rather than the everlasting arms of God and the fullness that comes from relationship with our Father in heaven. That um, our thirst is not met in this life, in this era, by removing the aching desire, but by pouring out of the Spirit. That um, Jesus is talking about this living water, which often in the Old Testament is a metaphor for the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And then um, it's actually the woman. See, Jesus got the first two turns in the conversation. The water is not working for you. The next turn, go get your husband, what you're really running after. And so the woman actually gets to lead the congregation, the conversation to its conclusion. She says in verse 19, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. So there's a couple things going on here. One is that it's, <laughs> it's always easier to talk about theology than yourself. But I don't think the woman is really avoiding the topic. I think she is understood. Um, 
She's wanting to know, okay, if you have this life for me, if there's another place to go from the well than, than to men or, any, or my children or any of these other things, where do I go? Uh, it might be an honest question. It might be a form of agnosticism in terms of like, well, the Jews say this, the Samaritans say this, who really knows? Either way, she is on some level open to Jesus giving her the answer. I mean, here's, here's her question. So Jesus is traveling through Samaria. These are not Israelites. Um, it's sort of a mixed race of half Israelites and other people, and they took some of the Old Testament, not all of it. And uh, in the Old Testament, it says you should worship in Jerusalem. And they built some stricture, scriptures that said you shouldn't worship in Jerusalem. You should worship in Mount Gerizim. So she's like, okay, if I need to worship, where do we worship? So Jesus says two things. Um, firstly, he says the Jews were right. Um, verse 22, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. That um, he definitively, strongly, but I'm thankful, comes down on the side of the Old Testament. That he does not leave the question unanswered. The Samaritan scriptures are not the scriptures. You worship a God that you do not know. We worship a God we know. That God is accurately and fully portrayed in the Old Testament scriptures. And the worship in Jerusalem that he spoke of is trustworthy and true. But then in the very next breath, he says, actually before this, verse 21, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Again in verse 23, The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Here's Jesus' answer. Uh, between Samaritans and the Jews, it's the Jews, by the way. But what really matters is that neither of that's about to matter anyway. Worship here, there, that's all about to be obsolete because now you worship with me. That uh, in the past, you knew the true worshipers because they were the ones who worshipped in Jerusalem. In the future, we will know them because they worship in spirit and truth. Well, what does that mean? Well, a few things. It's in contrast to where you worship on a mountain. So Jesus is saying, in the past, you worshiped in a specific place. The Old Testament says, if you're going to meet with God, you go to the temple in Jerusalem. And he says, that era is about to come to an end. In fact, it's coming to an end now, because remember... John, in 1.18, says that Jesus tabernacled among us, that he is the new temple. And so, um, in the spirit, Jesus' spirit is present in every place. And so, wherever Jesus is present in his spirit, the temple is present. And so, the first thing it means to worship in spirit and in truth is that spirit is no longer localized around Jerusalem. Or actually, it may be more accurate to put the spirit is Jerusalem is now localized everywhere the Spirit is present. Uh, you're going to chuckle, but look, this illustration works for me. I just found out this last week that if you fly from here to San Francisco, this is an airplane analogy, um, that you can get on a nonstop flight from San Francisco to the following Chinese cities. Beijing, Shanghai, Hong Kong, Guangzhou, Wuhan, and Chengdu. I had to use Google Maps to figure out where Wuhan is. The question is, for us as Christians, from this point forward, when you think of Wuhan, 
Do you think of it as an abstract Chinese city, or do you think of it as the residing point of the new Jerusalem where the Holy Spirit and truth dwell and where believers are gathered together in worship? Because I guarantee you that's the case. I actually have heard on good authority from a friend who knew a Chinese government official that the communist government in China now believes that there are more Protestant Christians worshiping in China than there are Americans, period. That in this new era, where Christians worship in spirit and truth, everywhere is Jerusalem. Where do you go to meet the living God? They gather together in Kailua. They gather together over in Honolulu in City Church, in Harbor Church. They gather together in Texas, in Finland, in Iceland, in New Zealand. There is no place where there is not a witness and a presence of the Holy Spirit and a worshiping community. But worship in spirit and truth doesn't just mean decentralization. What does the spirit do? The spirit is that which breathes life in creation. It renews a new creation. The Holy Spirit is he who brings conviction of sin and assurance of the Father's love and life from the Holy Spirit. In... Um, Speaking of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit in Zechariah 14, it says, On that day, the day of the Holy Spirit, living waters, this is the water analogy again, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter, and the water shall cover the entire earth. It's the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And remember, sticking with the analogy of water bringing life, that the Holy Spirit is flowing out from all of the Jerusalemic centers around the world, bringing life. Isaiah 44 says the Holy Spirit will be like pouring water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. That um, the Spirit comes and brings life in such a way that our worship is no longer mediated by all sorts of symbols. And uh, the, the, the Spirit emanates from Christ. But Christ is the one with the love of the Father, and at the ascension, so I can bring in the ascension that happened last week, he ascended, he's sitting on the throne of the living God. Uh, we don't know where, but the church has always believed that from the moment of his incarnation, Jesus continues to have a physical body, and so he rose somewhere where we can't see and yet physically dwells in the presence of the Father and from them emanates the Holy Spirit and so the presence of Holy Spirit and with him the love and presence of the Father and the Son come with him to all places. That we worship not just anywhere, we worship in the presence of the Spirit who brings us the love, the life, the new creation, the regenerating force from Father and Son. Jesus says, I'm, uh, I'm going to end the temple and I'm going to begin a better way. The woman understands. She says, verse 25, I know that Messiah is coming. John adds, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus says, I who speak to you am he. The conversation has reached its conclusion. From thirst to what we wrongly fill our thirst with, 
to what the right thing to fill our thirst is. That um, if we take this seriously, what this means, and just hang on, because none of you are going to believe me, that what you need in the midst of all of your emptiness and longing in life is you need to worship. You need to gather together in this place with other believers or in some other place where people are gathered together into a church and you need to worship with the Holy Spirit in the presence of King Jesus. And uh, I will be the first among us to admit that my image of how glorious worship could be is usually not the reality. I was in the office last night listening to some of our worship songs on YouTube, working my way through the service, excited for us to be here in the presence of the Holy Spirit and we're going to worship and Jesus is so awesome and that's what the call to worship says and this is so great! And I get here this morning, and the reality is that our little candle lighter thing has run out of gas, and so we have no candles lit, and all of a sudden, not one of our microphones is working three minutes before the service, and this is just not how this is supposed to go. And Jesus is saying there's something mystical taking place here. That if you would give up your lesser lovers and come to me, I'm not going to take away your pain in this present life but I can help you survive. Attach the feeding tube to me, is what Jesus says. One of the strange things that happens when you become a pastor is that people spontaneously apologize to you for not coming to service. Every time I see someone who has not been at church last Sunday, I'm so sorry, pastor, I wasn't there last week. I'm frequently tempted to say, I don't care. But I don't say, I, look, I do care. It's, I don't want to communicate that I don't care about you. But I am not interested in you experiencing guilt or pressure to come here. I don't care about that. But what I want is for you to find something here that's more important to you, that's more life-giving in some mystical way, in some real way, than anything you might seek to feed yourself anywhere else. That this is a good and right place to be thirsty and to have one talk to us about giving living water. And the woman totally gets it. Verse 28, so the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? She started thirsty looking for water from the well, and at the end, she's so enthralled with what she has met in this person and his worship, to worship in spirit and truth, she's completely forgotten about the water jar. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for um, 